Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you might be joining us today. Welcome back to DDP Podcast. Uh, what an excitement segment we have for you today. I know I always say all our episodes are exciting, but today's one is extra exciting um, because today I'm speaking to Tali Nates, who is the founder and the director of the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center and the chair of the South African Holocaust and Genocide uh, Foundation. Tali is a historian who lectures uh, internationally on Holocaust education, genocide prevention, reconciliation and human rights. She was born to a family of Holocaust survivors. Her uncle and father were saved by Oscar Schindler. She has been involved in the creation and production of dozens of documentary films, one of which I recently saw that was uh, being hosted there at the Holocaust Center. Raoul Wallenberg would uh, 10 out of 10 recommend. Um, she's published many articles and contributed papers to different books. She serves on many advisory boards, including that of the academic advisory group of the Social School of Social and Health Sciences at Monash University and the Interdisciplinary Academic Journal of Bain Yar Holocaust Memorial Center. In 2010, Tali was chosen as one of the top 100 newsworthy and noteworthy women in South Africa by the Mail and Guardian newspaper and won many awards, including the Kia Community Service Award in 2015, the Gratias Agate Award in 2020, and the Austrian Holocaust Memorial Award and the Gothi, I hope I pronounced that correctly, medal in 2022. What a mouthful biography. I'm pretty certain it could be much longer than that. Tali, thank you so much. Welcome. How are you doing? Uh, so glad to have you in the DDP community. Thank you so much, Yanga, for the invitation and for sharing uh, uh, my, my bio. Uh, it is such a pleasure to be with you today. Awesome. Um, I think let's just maybe start with the with the basics. Um, can you just let us know about the work of the Johannesburg and uh, Holocaust and Genocide Center? Of course, my pleasure. So uh, we opened only in 2019. It is a public private partnership between the city of Joburg and our NGO, uh, the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center, took a long time to build and to create, um, about 10 years. And um, really what we do is to shine a light on genocides of the 20th century, uh, starting with next door, Namibia, or what used to be German Southwest Africa, and the Overherero and Nama genocide of the of 1904, and going through the genocides of the 20th century, up to the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda in 1994, and then focusing uh, throughout our work in mainly the two case studies of, uh, of the Holocaust and the genocide in Rwanda, but then making connections to ourselves in South Africa, to our own past of colonialism, of apartheid, of racism, and sadly, our present challenges of uh, racism, xenophobia, Afrophobia, and, and, and so much more. Uh, so, so it is really a place where you look at the past in order to make connections to today's world. And the past is, is serving as an entry point to look at ourselves here in South Africa. 
Sure, I'm so glad you you mentioned that um, the importance of looking in the past and having to reconcile it today. And technically speaking, the whole idea of looking into the past is to make sure that the mistakes of the past are not repeated again, right? Um, and I'm very glad that in terms of the the work that you guys are focusing on, it's um, as big as the Holocaust was, there's often these stories that are forgotten of other genocides that have happened in, in history, uh, you know, dating all the way back to the uh, 17th century in the Americas, you know, with the indigenous population over there, where America recently was celebrating Thanksgiving, um, but the undergirding historical facts of how that day even came out to be um, is a very terrifying history for the indigenous peoples there, all the way to Belgian Congo times as a result of uh, colonial effects. Um, we had the, the Jewish Holocaust that had also happened, and we moved forward, and then the Rwandan one also happened. And you would think that somewhere in the trajectory of history, um, someone would have been like, okay, guys, let's stop this now. It's getting a little bit out of hand, but it's almost as if there's a pattern that occurs in, 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 you know, in all these uh, monumental genocide moments. Um, can you maybe just draw out for us what possible patterns arise that lead up to those um, tragic events? It is uh, really the core of what we try to do at the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center. We have sort of a philosophy or a, or a way of looking at history um, and as you come in, you have actually um, Primo Levi's words. Uh, he was a, a, a very famous Italian author, actually a chemist before he was deported to Auschwitz, part of the resistance in Italy, and uh, of course survived Auschwitz. Uh, to uh, to in, in his words are saying, it happened, therefore it can happen again. This is the core of what we have to say. It can happen. And it can happen anywhere or everywhere. And, and, and really the anywhere or everywhere is the key. It is not just Germans that can do it, you know, to targeted groups like, like Jews or Roma or Sinti that they call gypsies or, 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 or gay men or so on. It's not only the Hutu extremists that can kill almost a million Tutsi men, women and children in, in Rwanda. And you gave the examples from early history, from the colonial period, from the settlement period of, 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 of the Americas, you know, from, uh, and we can go on and on and on. You know, it's a sort of a, a cycle of it can happen again. And of course, after the Second World War, the words never again were coined. Uh, and, and we know our own Nelson Mandela said those words. In his inauguration speech, he said, never, never again, our people will suffer. So never again, never again, never again. Yet it is never again until the next time. It is never again, yet again. It's a never again with a question mark. So how do we create a situation where our generation living today get it, get it, that we don't need to experience again these cycles where genocide and mass atrocities or crimes against humanity, it's not a competition. There are many, many crimes, but those crimes happen and they target civilians. They target 
women, men, children that did not do any crime. They are targeted because of who they are, where they are, you know, where they, they geographically are and so on. Uh, so, so there is a kind of a cycle uh, and, and we need to look at why and what happens to trigger or to build those, those events. Um, and because I'm speaking to you and your institute, what we also need to notice specifically in the 20th century, and that's what we do, so I'll go back to that, is the genocide and also usually crimes against humanity do not happen in democratic regimes, ever. They always happen in autocratic regimes, in dictatorships, in totalitarian states, in non-democratic regimes. And you can see, of course, Namibia, the German Southwest Africa as an example. It's a colonial power, the German Kaiser, the Second Reich, the Kaiser, targeting the population, uh, the Ovaherero or Nama, and so on and so forth. Every example from Cambodia to, to Myanmar now, or to, to any example that we will look, it's never a democratic country. And that's what we need to, to look at. Yeah, so interesting you said that. I think um, from my political sciences background, we have a lot of theories that do support this. And the big one in international relations um, is the democratic liberal peace order. The idea that a democratic country will never go into conflict with another democratic country. Um, but, you know, there's, there's always a critique behind it that democratic countries can go ahead and be in conflict with non-democratic countries. And um, most of the time under the guise of we need to put in democracy in there in order to sustain peace. Um, even though sometimes there can be a criticism that that can be used as a front to get something else out for the state. But the core principle remains that there's just something about this democracy thing that maintains peace. Even though we might be in multiculturalistic societies and plural societies, democracy seems to be the only political system that protects differences and also gives individuals agency to be able to have a say in the system that they're functioning in to begin with. And so I think from um, just your background with um, education and human rights, can you just ground it for us on what it is that democracy produces to prevent tragic events like genocides from happening? So, Yanga, allow me to maybe start for our listeners, just in case there is, you know, what is genocide? What am I talking about before I go to the democracy? So, so the term or the, the, the word genocide was only coined in 1944, towards the end of the Second World War by uh, a lawyer, Raphael Lemkin, that took a Latin and Greek word to put them together, genocide, uh, a killing of people. The, the, then the convention uh, for the uh, prevention and punishment of the crime of genocide passed by the newly established United Nations after uh, the events of the Second World War um, adopted this convention. And it's not perfect, of course, um, probably no, it could, could have been better, uh, but 
in the circumstances uh, working with the Soviet Union, with Stalin, working with the United States, working with France, working with with um, with uh, uh, the United Kingdom and defeated Germany and Italy and so on, the the, the convention speaks about the intent. So you need to have intention to destroy, to kill, to mass murder, in whole or in part, a group of people. And there are the terms of what is that group of people, or if it's a race or ethnic group or so religious group and so on. Um, and, and, and it's a compromise uh, uh, law, but it works. And when you look at genocide after this term, because of course, uh, the Overherero and Nama genocide, Armenia, or, or, or the Holocaust happened before you have a word, before you have a law. So you can only look at it now after. So let's look at Rwanda as a case study. Uh, Rwanda is a non-democratic state when the genocide happens. It's authoritarian. It is uh, excluding part of the population since the birth of independent Rwanda. Before that, it was controlled by Germany and then Belgium, and then received independence in the early 1960s. And from then on, it's non-democratic. It is um, uh, th there are massacres against mi minority groups. Uh, there is expulsions against minority groups. And then, when there is an economic crisis, things are becoming worse. And then, when uh, I'm shortening that uh, history uh, <laughs> really to, to two sentences. Please come to our Holocaust and Genocide Center and learn much more about, about this very complex history. But this regime, this non-democratic re regime, is blaming always the minority group in all its woes. If it's economic, if it is uh, uh, the establishment of uh, a Tutsi force, or a Rwandan patriotic force, uh, 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 um, the RPF, the, the uh, Rwanda Patriotic Front or, or army that asks or demands to bring back the Tutsi back to Rwanda. Uh, there are negotiations, the international community is involved. Nevertheless, in the end, the genocide starts on the 7th of April of 1994 and lasts for about three months, three and a half months, and uh, anything about, from about 800,000, 900,000 to about a million or over, mainly Tutsi, but, but also Hutu, Twa, were murdered. So that is just one case to emphasize the fact that, first of all, genocide usually happen internally not externally, it's not between countries fighting for, for, for anything. It's the intent to destroy a minority group that is blamed for the woes of the majority group uh, in different ways. In Rwanda, there were snakes and cockroaches and traitors and non-human and, and so on and so forth. Uh, in the other cases, it will be different uh, accusations, but then there is the targeting of that group to annihilation, extermination, killing in any means possible. You don't have to build an Auschwitz to kill. You can kill with machetes, you can kill with pangas, you can kill sadly face to face. Wow, sure. I think um, every single time I do hear about the, the the history of the Rwandan genocide, even if it's 
within two sentences. It's still so um, impactful to hear and quite and quite intense. I must say. Um, just to go back to that definition of a of a genocide. If I remember clearly, the United Nations um, had somewhat of an expansion on it, on speaking about it on the front of there's a, a genocide that can happen with the literal killing of people and a genocide that can occur with the erasure of culture purposefully. Right. Um, and with this particular thing, I think of the aboriginals um, in Australia uh, I think about a certain Samoan uh, community recently in, in the Indo-Pacific uh, uh, that was talking about how, as a result of climate change, or perhaps now we might be entering in a bit of a vague territory that um, when the term genocide was being coined in 1944, they maybe did not foresee it uh, expanding to the point that it is now. But there's talks right now about how by virtue of us not taking care of the planet, um, of constant pollution, of just global warming in general, a lot of minority indigenous groups, which have been highly dependent on, you know, uh, living in isolated societies and are intricately linked with nature much more than we are, they are getting erased. Um, and as a result of them being erased, their entire communities are either dying out, which we had seen in the Amazon recently, or they having to change their culture to assimilate um, with another culture in, in an attempt to try to survive. Would you say that that cultural definition of a genocide would extend to that um, as a result of, of climate change? This is a very, very key issue, uh, both uh, the cultural genocide, which uh, uh, sadly is also something that we saw from the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia to um, the Taliban in Afghanistan that destroyed, you know, cultural assets, languages, uh, uh, ways of life, and, and to the indigenous people that you are speaking about throughout the world, from Australia to some of the islands and so on. What is really interesting is the new term that came up in the last years, and that new term is ecocide. Ecocide. We just did a, a brilliant, brilliant webinar about it in collaboration with the University of the Witwatersrand, and we hosted key experts from the United States, from Europe, from Africa, from Ghana, from South Africa. And I would love, love people to go into our YouTube channel and listen to that uh, episode, because what are we saying? We're saying that we can use the term that Raphael Lemkin invented and used for general people's killing to echo killing. And actually, this is now can hit actually anyone. And you remember we started our podcast and I said about never again, never again, again and again. And Primo Levi saying it can happen anyway and everywhere. And ecocide actually is a warning to us that if we do not wake up, it will happen because there will be uh, not only minority targeting because of you know, religion or race or, or gender or other things. There will be uh, targeting because of water, 
because of food, because of wood, because of, of anything. And uh, that is a scary thought, but we are progressing alarmingly fast there. Um, and maybe the last sentence that I will say is that it was a group of people that coined ecocide, and one of them is an expert on genocide, advocate Philippe Sands. And Philippe Sands from the UK, of course, uh, wrote the excellent books East West Street and The Red Line that I fully recommend. But he also was the main advocate around the genocide of the Rohingya in, in, in Burma, in Myanmar. And uh, he is one that is now driving the the. The, this new term, ecocide, and saying, world, wake up. Will we? I wonder. Yeah, will we indeed? I love that term, ecocide. I, I, I really do, but also mainly because I'm, I'm a sustainable energy scholar and um, part of the, 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 the studies I'm doing is getting to the conclusion that the anthropocentric way genuinely just has not been working. Um, it needs to be ecocentric, whatever solutions we do moving forward. Otherwise, nature will respond. Um, it always has responded. But it's so interesting, though, with this ecocide term, I keep thinking to myself that this ecocide that is happening can easily lead to another genocide, right? Um, in the name of trying to fight for those natural resources, um, which I hope to God we never get to that point, but it, it's such a weighty term, I must say, um, if, if, if things actually do come into fruition and come true, you know. Um, and I certainly hope that the colleague can maybe take that ecocide thing to COP28 uh, next year in Dubai. It should be the trending term, uh, 100%. Um, I think let's go to another side quickly. Um, maybe we can't not talk about this considering the fact that it is 16 days of activism here in South Africa, particularly looking at uh, gender-based violence against women and children. Um, and the term that we emerged with out of COVID-19, our own president had said it, is the fact that women in South Africa are going through a femicide. Um, and it's a very heavy discussion. It pains me that there's only 16 days of the year that we focus on this, when in fact it should be something we're focusing on each and every single day. Um, but what do you say to the fact that something like femicide can exist in a democracy like ours? Yeah, you know, it's, it is alarming as you said 16 days only should be the full year should be awareness of every every person but again as you can uh, see in our president uh, indeed coined using this uh, this uh, Raphael Lemkin again uh, uh, um, a term that that was coined in 1944 to to drive the point home and um I, I would like to cover two very briefly two two areas in this uh, genocides um, throughout the 20th century, if we just stay in our last century and in this century, always targeted women and children first. If you look at the Holocaust or you look at, uh, at the Ovaherero in Nama genocide, or if you look at, at Rwanda, 
who was targeted first, and not only to kill, but to torture, to rape, to um, to uh, amputate, and and to 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 really uh, create a situation where where life was was barely. You know, people barely stayed alive. Um, so, so um, again, if I look at uh, either the Holocaust, we out of the the six million targeted uh, Jewish people, one and a half million were children. If we look at Rwanda, where the majority of those that were victimized uh, for rape which is now a crime of genocide because of Yugoslavia, the ex-Yugoslavia, and because of Rwanda. Now, rape is actually acceptable as a crime of genocide, and that is mainly for women. Of course, men are sometimes also targeted for rape. So this is the one thing I wanted to say, and just for our listeners to really understand that genocide is always targeting first those that they perceive is the most vulnerable uh, and, and, and they they kill uh, them uh, or murder them and including uh, children that the generation will not create another generation another generation and that's the reason women and children are are killed the second very brief point that I wanted to say is about South Africa in South Africa according to police statistics which is, probably about 10 to 20 times underreported is uh, the targeting of women. And I'll be curious to, to hear the statistics that usually come now uh, from the police of the targeting of women. I know that Becky Tele, uh, our minister, just came up with rape statistics that were so alarming and so frightening. And these are underreported by 10 to 20 times because people will not go to the police to report. Now, these statistics are putting South Africa in a state of war. We are actually not a country in peace. We are a country in a state of war. And the, the, the road from that to crimes against humanity, sorry, my internet was uh, unstable. Are you, is it okay? Is it Fine. Okay. Suddenly it was a message. So just edited that. <laughs> but the, the, um, the, the, the point uh, that I wanted to make is that um, not everything is, of course, genocide, because genocide is the intention to target every woman in South Africa, which I don't think it is. Uh, and that's the reason, luckily, the term was not used by our president. He did not say that there is genocide against women, but he used the word femicide, which hints to the fact that women are targeted. I would say that uh, we can start looking at it as crime against humanity. And what is, of course, crime against humanity is the targeting one by one by one of people uh, against the human dignity, against the human rights, against the, the, the uh, humanity. And I think that we are seeing that in South Africa. And as I said, it is a country, according to the targeting of women, that is in a state of war, equivalent to any other country that is in a state of war. That is scary. That is scary indeed. Um, even more so to think that this term femicide right now can be um, applied to the state of Iran um, and uh, the women that are calling for 
um, just their freedom. So it's not even necessarily a situation of them calling for, you know, rebellion and let's screw the government or anything like that. It's just a matter of them wanting to exist and to be treated as human beings and with dignity. And over there, you know, it's almost as if it's the traditional force that's responding to them. It's the police responding harshly and it's the state responding harshly. But here in South Africa, it's so subtle, which makes it so dangerous because we can't go and say there's a particular society or a group of men that have gotten together that have said, we are going to target women, right? I think that's why it got uh, you know cut from the definition of a genocide. It's a matter of very, very... Um, you know, hurt men, I must say, who need a lot of counseling and who need a lot of education um, that have taken it upon themselves not to see women as human beings at all to begin with, just as objects for themselves. And it's a matter of our states having to fight a mindset, um, which is a little bit more difficult than having to fight an organized society that gets together and says, we're going to go out and do this. And I think the only way to do that is to enhance our democratic values, to uh, make sure people have access to education and the quality of our education as well, um, should teach uh, men, ironically, about the fact that their women counterparts are human too. Um, but it's scary that we are there, um, like you said. And um, just maybe one more thing, um, just from your perspective uh, as a historian, the world seems to be moving to a more polarized uh, world, right? There's, it's either you are left or you are right. It's either you are pro this or anti that. And as a result of the world just moving further and further apart, there's arguments that democracy is taking a strain with that because it can have moments where people undermine the fact that it is what supports people having differing opinions. Um, but as people move further apart, they want different kinds of political systems. Um, from your perspective as a historian, I know we usually say in political sciences, we don't uh, predict, we forecast what's going to happen. Um, what do you think is going to be the consequence of this continued polarization? So I think that you are really very much uh, right in, in, in highlighting the polarization. Uh, I would like to add, um, you know, the term illiberal democracies that are coming up in many, many parts of the world, uh, much more, of course, nationalism, uh, nationalism uh, populism, which can be very, very dangerous. Uh, and... Uh, as a historian, of course, we always look at the past. We we always uh, tend to look at examples from the past, at, at case studies from the past. And um, actually, uh, again, I will invite our listeners to, to go to our Spotify and SoundCloud channels of the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center and listen to a seven-part series uh, called Sleepwalking Through the Assault on Democracy. And we, five of us, are uh, academics, practitioners, historians, religious studies, gender studies, specialists, uh, are in discussion about how can you look at past case studies, like 
Stalin's Soviet Union, like the Holocaust, like Rwanda, like Hungary uh, during communist time or Germany during communist time, and uh, try and not predict because we are historians, but try to see if we see patterns that are emerging. And um, we look at, for example, hate speech and dangerous speech. That is our first episode. What, what do we do with dangerous speech? But we look at education, at religion, at gender, at women, at men, at laws, at everything and everything, anything that we can learn from the past in order to try and prevent from the same sort of patterns to, um, to, to come back. And lastly, maybe uh, I will invite also our listening listeners to reflect on what uh, Professor Gregory Stanton uh, coined as the 10 stages of genocide. And they're not perfect. It's not always in the same order. They're not always there. But these warning signs we need to pay attention to. It's very important to actually listen to the warning signs, signs because maybe, just maybe, we can stop at dehumanization and not go into mass killing. We can stop in uh, uh, segregation and reverse it and not go to torture and, 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 uh, and genocide. So these are the kind of tools that we historians in a center like ours, that is a center of history, that try to make the connections to today's world, try to warn against future atrocities. What a brilliant place to end off right there. I'm going to try to squeeze in um, uh, the, this last bit of our podcast over here, just listening to our Zoom right now. It's trying to kick us out. Um, but what a wonderful, wonderful conversation, Talia. I think um, the work that you guys are doing is absolutely incredible. And just to our listeners and maybe even our viewers on YouTube, if you ever find yourself in Johannesburg and you need something to do, educational things to do, uh, go to the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center. What a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, and I believe it's, it's open seven times a week. Um, and entrance is absolutely free, doesn't get better than that, it's free people, um, but also you can go ahead and check out um, the work that the Johannesburg uh, Centre um, does on their social media platforms, I'll attach them below in the description, um, and also all the podcast episodes that she had just mentioned over here, please go ahead and listen to them, I've also attached them here below, uh, but otherwise, Hallie, thank you so much. Uh, for Thank having you. a conversation with me. I, I really do appreciate it wholly. And I can't wait to come back to the center. Um, I'm really, really excited to be there again. Um, and yeah, to everybody else at home, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. We sincerely hope that you enjoyed it. Um, join us again for our next episode where we unpack 16 days of activism even more and in greater detail. Um, up until then, I will see you in our next episode.